Rare Book School 1989, held 10 years ago at Columbia University in New York City over a four-week period between Monday, July 3rd and Friday, July 28th, offered a total of 20 five-day courses. The tuition for each of these courses was $435. The Rare Book School program staff that year included Martin Antonetti, Carol Briggs, James Davis, David Ferris, Melissa Mead, and Richard Noble, and that's all it included. The staff is now more than twice the size it needs to be. One member of the 1989 program staff, James Davis, is still on the, RBMS programs, on the RBS program staff. He's a superb example of the triumph of hope over experience. Another member of the 1989 staff, Melissa Mead, took a course in Rare Book School last week. Two members of the 1989 program staff, Martin Antonetti and Richard Noble, are now on the Rare Book School faculty. This leaves only Carol Briggs and David Ferris. Carol Briggs now lives in England, where she and her husband have a small child, but I suspect her relationship with RBS's domestic or foreign will at least eventually prove to be a continuing one. David Ferris was planning to take Daniel Pitty's EAD course in Rare Book School last week, but was prevented because he was assaulted and robbed in Boston three weeks ago, and he's still recovering from quite substantial head injuries suffered on that occasion. He now plans to take the course here in January, on which more shortly. Meanwhile, I'm sure David would appreciate hearing from his old friends at Rare Book School. The Rare Book School 1989 faculty included Greer Allen, John Bidwell, Christopher Clarkson, Albert Derelay, Paul Needham, Nicholas Pickwode, Susie Taraba, Daniel Traster, Michael Turner, and Michael Winship. Ten persons all still with us in Rare Book School 1999. Other RBS 89 faculty members included Timothy Barrett, Morris Cohen, Alice Schreier, Samuel Streit, Marilee Taylor, and David Warrington, six persons, most of whom taught in Rare Book School 1998, and all of whom, I hope, will be returning in Rare Book School 2000. The remaining RBS 89 faculty members were Eugene Beshenkovsky, Susan Davis, Margaret Crawford Maloney, George Miles, John Parker, William Reese, Anthony Rota, Justin Schiller, Robert Sink, and Stephen Young, as well as the late Carolyn Harris and Peter Van Wingen. Of the 26 members of the Rare Book School 1989 faculty, 16, or slightly more than 60%, are still concerned with the school 10 years later. What is true of Rare Book School faculty is true of the school as a whole. The majority of the 338 participants in Rare Book School this summer have attended Rare Book School before. Indeed, 105 of them, or rather more than 30%, were here last year. In speaking to you to this evening, I don't know as I am preaching to the choir, but I am certainly speaking to a sea of familiar faces. And this is, if I have counted right, the 44th time that I have delivered variants of this lecture from this and other podiums. Though half of you are old-timers, by definition, half of you have never attended Rare Book School before and are thus fresh cannon fodder for these remarks. <laughs> I address the first part of this lecture to the fresh faces in the audience. 
The old-timers, making up the other half, may wish to take a short nap while I continue. When you hear me say, undergraduate curators, you will know that I've gotten to the new part of the speech. During the 1971-72 academic year at Columbia University, I served as a two-thirds full-time lecturer at the university's Graduate School of Library Service, SLS, teaching courses in the literature of the humanities and in descriptive bibliography. Brand new PhD in 18th century English literature in hand, I had been brought onto the library school's faculty at short notice the previous winter because of the illness of Professor Alan Hazen, who had taught these courses at the school for many years. Hazen retired at the end of the 1971-72 academic year, and in the spring of 1972, I was offered a full-time appointment as assistant professor in the library school to begin with the 72-73 academic year. I celebrated my new appointment by asking the dean of the school, Richard Darling, for, for space on the fifth floor Butler Library quarters for a laboratory press to be used to support courses I proposed to teach in descriptive bibliography, the history of books and printing, and related fields. Dean Darling turned over to me an unused office within the dean's suite of offices at the school, and so the Book Arts Press was born 27 years ago. Along with my appointment as assistant professor at SLS came a brief to develop a master's level rare book program in the school. At the time, there were two regularly scheduled courses in the School of Library Service directly relating to rare books. This level of rare book activity was typical of the larger library schools at the time. There were no very well-developed programs in rare book librarianship, nor had there ever been such a program in the United States before though a number of library schools mounted individual courses in rare book curatorship and related subjects, and most of them had at least a one-semester course in the history of books to offer their students in the name of general background and, cultural, and of cultural enrichment. The Columbia University School of Library Service was, by library school standards, a big operation in the 1970s. SLS admitted about 200 new students to the master's degree each year, in the 1972-73 academic year alone, for example, Susan Thompson had a total of 103 students in several sections of her history of the book course. The School of Library Service substantially revised its master's degree curriculum in 1974, introducing a core component and lowering the total number of required courses from seven of 12 needed for the master's degree to three. This revision was a necessary precondition for developing programs in special fields at SLS, but once it was made, a program in rare books emerged rapidly. I expanded my descriptive bibliography course to two semesters in 1972-73. G. Thomas Tansel left the English department at the University of Wisconsin in 1978 to become vice president of the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation in New York City. He began teaching courses in bibliography and scholarly editing in the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences at Columbia in the fall of 1980. As had been the case a decade earlier when Alan Hazen taught these courses in the English department, they were well populated by SLS students. Paul Banks came to SLS in 1981 to establish well-funded programs in conservation and preservation administration. He was assisted by Gary Link Frost, who taught courses in the conservation program's new laboratories across campus in Skirmahorn Extension, and later by Nicholas Pickwode. 
By the mid-1980s, what became known as a diehard rare book type could adopt a master's program at Columbia, which could include up to nine courses in the history of the book with Susan Thompson, or occasionally with Daniel Traster, in preservation with Carolyn Harris or Paul Banks, in archives with Susan Davis and Robert Sink of New York Public Library, in rare book library curatorship with Gerald Gottlieb or later William Joyce, and in descriptive, analytical, and textual bibliography in a four-semester sequence with Tom Tansel and me. That was the golden age of the rare book program at Columbia. The principle controlling the development of this program in the 1970s and 1980s was a simple one. To teach the book and encourage the teaching of books as a physical object. To teach the thereness of rare books. The program emphasized format and collation, the history of typography, the recognition of illustration processes, the dating and localization of binding styles. In short, it dealt with books as things that you can pick up and hold in your hands. Its major pedagogical preoccupation was quite literally to rub students' noses in books, to find ways to study the physical book directly from books and not merely from reproductions of them via illustrations in books on books or via 35 millimeter slides or via films or photocopies or other facsimile formats. Now the best way to teach books as physical objects is to have a lot of books around to teach with. A difficult matter to arrange with rare books because of the scarcity, fragility, and replacement value of these objects, especially at Columbia University, where in 1972, the rare book department of the Columbia University Libraries was not equipped either physically or psychologically for dealing effectively with large groups of students. Hence the need for an independent SLS bibliographical laboratory, and thus the birth of the Book Arts Press itself. Opening day equipment at the press included two 19th century iron presses lent to us by the rare book department, along with a supply of type. A talented group of current and recently graduated students at SLS, known as the printers of the Book Arts Press, helped set up and maintain the press room during its early years. We had space and some equipment, but according to its original agreement with Dean Richard Darling, no money whatsoever from the school. For years, the printers raised money for paper, ink, and type by a variety of activities ranging from raffles to the sale of Christmas cards. One of the first printing projects of the Book Arts Press undertaken when the press was only a few months old, and great work we made of it, was a poster announcing Michael Turner's November 1972 lecture on the John Johnson collection of printed ephemera in the Bodleian Library, Oxford University, of which he was then curator. This was Book Arts Press Lecture Number 1. A copy of the poster advertising the lecture hangs in the Book Arts Press classroom today, above and to the right of the door leading to the sink hallway outside. At first, the procession of Book Arts Press lectures was a fairly stately one, since funding was dependent for each occasion on an ad hoc appeal to the dean of the school. Once the Friends of the Book Arts Press began to subsidize these lectures, the tempo quickened. In 1976, there were four Book Arts Press lectures. In 1978, there were eight. In 1980, there were 15. In 1982, there were 22. Were all these lectures worth the trouble they took to organize? For the most part, the quality of the lectures was good, and in any event, what our lectures had to say was, so far as I was concerned, less important than what they had to see. 
While at Columbia, lecturers typically visited the Book Arts Press Room and its constantly expanding teaching collections. They caught up with other news about the SLS Rare Book Program, and they routinely served thereafter as, as informal ambassadors for the program. The more so that when SLS was only one stop on an American lecture tour, which in a number of cases was undertaken at our instances and under our auspices. Other speakers tended to take our posters advertising their Book Arts Press lecture home, especially the more outrageous or amusing ones. Sometimes they even had them framed and hung on their office walls, thereby further spreading the news about the existence of the Rare Book Program at Columbia. The establishment of Rare Book School in 1983 expanded the lecture schedule into the summer months, and the pace stepped up again. In 1984, we sponsored 39 public lectures, 18 of them during a single 36-day period. 39 posters, 39 lectures, 39 receptions, 39 hangovers. <laughs> Listen to the names of the Book Arts Press evening lectures in that single year, 1984. Among the lecturers were Paul Banks, Nicholas Barker, Bernard Breslauer, John Cole, Kit Curie, Ellen Dunlap, William Joyce, Sandra Kirschenbaum, Paul Oscar Christeller, Catherine Kais Lieb, D.F. McKenzie, James Mosley, Nina Mazinski, Stan Nelson, Nicholas Pickwode, Fred Schreiber, W. Thomas Taylor, Claire Van Vliet, David Vandermeulen, Lawrence Witten, Marjorie Wynn. Roger Stoddard's lecture during Rare Book School 1997 was Book Arts Press Lecture number 400, and we're now up into the 430s. But the number of different Book Arts Press speakers, about 240 of them, is substantially smaller because so many have spoken here more than once. In 1985, Michael Winship delivered the first Saul M. Malkin lecture in bibliography, given in honor of Saul M. Malkin, who died in 1986 founder and with his wife Marianne Malkin, longtime editor of A.B. Bookman's Weekly. Two years after its founding in 1972, the Book Arts Press was finally in a financial position to put in a substantial order for text size printing type, 14-point monotype Caslon 337 in sorts, from Pat Taylor's Out of Sorts Letter Foundry, an event which enabled the establishment of regular laboratory sessions in hand composition and printing in my descriptive bibliography classes. Thereafter, as the resources of the Book Arts Press expanded, these lab sessions expanded in turn, and by the early 1980s, a regular routine had emerged. There were usually about 30 students taking my fall course in descriptive bibliography. I broke them down into three class sections so that I could fit each section of 10 or so students around the big table in the press room for a weekly class. I also divided them into five or six lab groups of about five students each and met with each group for an additional weekly session. This meant that my students saw me in class twice a week for a total of four hours, two hours in formal session and two hours of lab. And it meant that I saw my students in class for 16 or 18 hours a week three formal class sessions plus five or six lab groups. By usual academic standards, this was a heavy teaching load. The more so in that I was concerned with a number of other courses besides descriptive bibliography, notably the SLS core course at the time. But this schedule did ensure that I got to know my students well quite quickly, generally a difficult thing to do in a one-year master's program. 
In the second semester of my two-semester descriptive bibliography class, the same classless lab pattern continued, though attrition typically reduced the number of students in the class from the low 30s down to the low 20s, enabling a reduction of from three to two formal class sessions per week and a reduction of lab groups from six to four, thus reducing my weekly teaching load for this course from 18 hours per week to 12 hours. Welcome relief at this point, because by now students would be starting to need individual counseling, especially as regards their search for a professional position. There were many individually outstanding students in the rare book program throughout the 1970s, 80s, and early 1990s, and many noteworthy classes. Luckily, the most remarkable class, that of 1974-1975, came at the most opportune time for the success of the rare book program. Members of that class included John Bidwell, our lecturer at this podium last night, Inga Dupont, in residence at Rare Book School last week, Jeffrey Kamovitz, Bruce McKittrick, Charles McNamara, Pamela Smith, later Pamela Spence Richards, Carolyn Hover, later Caroline Schimmel, Alice Schreier, and Samuel Streit. I hope that Sam Streit will be returning to teach in his and Marilee Taylor's celebrated Special Collections Administration course at Rare Book School next summer, and I'm happy to announce that Alan Schreier will also be returning to Rare Book School next year after several years' absence to inaugurate a new course, the printed book Since 1800, complementing Martin Antonetti's course already in place, the printed book to 1800. Another course to be offered for the first time next summer will be the Medieval Book, to be taught by Roger Wick, curator of medieval and renaissance manuscripts at the Pierpont Morgan Library and one of our evening lecturers last week. Several other descriptive bibliography classes stand out. That of 1975-76, for example, which included Donald Farron, Bennett Gilbert, James Green, Dennis Landis, in residence here last week, Jennifer Lee, Nora Quinlan, and Daniel Traster on the Rare Book School faculty in weeks two and three this year. But the class of 1974-75 was not only the first class to achieve a clutch of stylish placements, but also the first to have regularly scheduled laboratory sessions. And from that year, the rare book program may be said to have had more than a purely local reputation. The Friends of the Book Arts Press came into existence in the fall of 1976 in order to support the rare book program of the school. The Friends tended to be persons who had no obvious connection to Columbia University, but who were willing to support the cause of rare book education in the United States with gifts of money and in kind. The group began small. There was a total of 16 friends at the end of the 1976-77 year and 130 by the end of the 1981-82 year, five years later, but growth was and continues to be steady. By any rational accounting procedure, rare book school always loses money on occasion quite a bit of it. It could not exist at all in its present form without the generous ongoing support of the Friends of the Book Arts Press. The goal of building up the Book Arts Press collections of teaching materials proceeded on several fronts in the 1970s and 1980s. We began the systematic acquisition of leather and cloth bindings arranged on the shelf in chronological order to facilitate the study of changes in binding styles. Since we weren't interested in the subject of the books, but only their bindings, the collection grew rapidly because the books were cheaply acquired. You can see the results of some of our acquisitiveness in the upper and lower shelves circling you in this room. 
We collected prints of all kinds, showing various sorts of illustration processes, trying wherever possible to get 12 or more examples from the same book or other source that could be protected in polyester enclosures, assembled into packets, and then used in class by up to 11 students or pairs of students and their instructors. Condition was of little importance to us, and accordingly, this collection grew rapidly. Currently, there are about 395 illustration packets. We put together paper and typography packets, again, each containing 12 or more samples of a particular kind of paper or representative of a particular kind of printing or typeface. We collected examples of different genres of books, a yellowback, a big little book, a blue and gold binding, a Cartonian library book, and so on. We call it 3D Carter, and this week's descriptive bibliography students saw a good part of it in their Monday Museum. We commissioned a special paper mold from Timothy Moore of Paragon Paper Molds designed to show techniques of construction and the differences between antique laid, double-faced laid, and wove. The Moore paper mold has seen heavy service in several rare book school classes this week alone. We persuaded Stan Nelson of the Division of Graphic Arts Smithsonian Institution to sell us one of his type molds and to show us how to use it. We bought leather and parchment skins, whole skins, of sheep, calf, and goat. We assembled a collection of descriptive bibliographies, old and new, good and bad, and shelved them next to copies of books that were described in these bibliographies. Part of this collection is the Thursday Museum in Rare Book School this week. We collected multiple copies of the same book to facilitate the study of issue and state. You may have noticed our collection of Janssen's in the Book Arts Press Room. We received from Cal Otto, who else, our 100th copy of Janssen last month. And we own 41 copies of the first edition, 1867, of John Greenleaf Whittier's Tent on the Beach. Thanks to Michael Winship, who presented us with a starter set of nine copies more than 10 years ago. We also bought new books, a working reference library of secondary materials, two essential shelves of books on bookbinding, two shelves of books on typography, four shelves of books on illustration processes, three shelves on the history of printing, a shelf of books on paper, two shelves on book collecting, and so on. Most recently, six shelves on manuscripts to support Roger Wick's class next year. Trying to restrict these collections ruthlessly to books currently useful and constantly needed. Eventually, we were able to get press room copies of practically all of the books listed not only on my descriptive bibliography course's extensive reading lists, but also those of a great many other rare book school instructors. The Book Arts Press' biggest gift came in 1989 through the good offices of Michael Turner in the Bodleian Library at Oxford University. Books and other unwanted items in a collection that had been owned by the Sandgard family in Lancashire and turned over to the Bodleian about 20 years earlier. The collection included a considerable range of odd volumes in both leather and cloth, incomplete books of all kinds, maps, prints, pre-World War II penguins, disbound Elseviers, early 20th century hardbound novels and dust jackets. We never knew what was going to be next to what on the shelf, from which we were allowed to choose nearly a 1,000 items, which were shipped airmail in 21 large cartons to New York through the kindness of Jack Walsdorf and Miles Blackwell of B.H. Blackwell Limited. Indeed, it was the 1989 Sandgard gift that really established the Book Arts Press teaching collections. Overnight, they doubled in size. The Bodleian Library's gift of the Sandgard books to the Book Arts Press marks the beginning of the bibliographical decade noted in the title of this lecture. As a small thank you to the Bodleian Library, 
RBS has recently established an annual fellowship providing uh, funding to help enable a member of the Bodleian Library staff to attend a Rare Book School course. This year, Sandgard Fellow was in residence in Rare Book School last week. Michael Webb, Assistant Librarian in the Department of Special Collections and Western Manuscripts at the Bodleian Library. In the early 1980s, it occurred to me that an informal non-credit Rare Book School would be a useful mechanism for opening up education for rare books to a broader clientele than our own Columbia University master's students and opening it up on a less restrictive basis than could be provided by any formal degree program, whether at Columbia or elsewhere. The first rare book school offered eight courses, each, off, each taught by two instructors, two courses per week for four weeks because we had only two classrooms available to us that were air-conditioned. For a theoretical capacity, 16 students per class of 120 students. In the, in the event, 113 enrolled. Encouraged by this, in 84, Rare Book School expanded to 20 courses held over a six-week period. I will never do that again. Rare Book Schools in recent years have been variations on the pattern established in 84 and 85. About two dozen courses offered over a four-week period, surrounded by a midway of public lectures and related events. Rare Book School produced lion-infested t-shirts and aprons of various colors and designs, and a Rare Book School coffee mug. By 1989, the school had become a well-established mechanism serving the continuing education needs of a number of related rare book professions. Rare book school graduates routinely became friends of the book arts press, thus increasing the financial base for the development of the press room collections. And rare book school itself was an incentive for the development of those collections because of the much larger number of persons able to benefit from them than had been the case when their use was restricted to the 20 or 30 students in the regular SLS master's program at any given moment with a special interest in rare books. In 1980, I became assistant dean of the School of Library Service and employed to keep the rare books program at Columbia after I had been denied tenure by the university's central administration, which was concerned over a continuing slow decline in SLS's enrollment, though not that of the rare book program. Robert Wedgworth became dean of the school in 1985 and in a by no means unrelated development. A year later, I became a tenured associate professor in the school, acquired a pair of offices on the sixth floor of Butler, and hired my first full-time assistant to help me run the rare book program and its various associated cottage industries. And then the sky fell in. In 1989, the president of Columbia University, Michael Sovereign, and his provost, Jonathan Cole, launched a successful campaign to close the School of Library Service. The trustees of the university voted in June 1990 to phase out the programs of the school, and SLS admitted its last two-year class in the fall of that year. The kangaroo court tactics the university's central administration chose to close the school precluded any possibility that the rare book program would stay at Columbia after the closing of the school, despite intimations from Low Library that a separate piece between the program and the university could be arranged. In the fall of 1990, the Rare Book Program publicly announced in the Book Arts Press newsletter that it was looking for a new home elsewhere, and shortly thereafter, it found one at the University of Virginia. The University of Virginia has a long tradition of prominence in bibliographical studies. The Bibliographical Society of the University was founded in the late 1940s by Fredson Bowers, for many years a faculty member here, 
by the Albemarle County book collector, Linton Massey, and by UVA's rare book librarian at the time, John Cook Wiley. In June 1990, Catherine Morgan, curator of rare books in the UVA Department of Special Collections, suggested to Kendon Stubbs and others in the UVA Library Senior Administration that there might be a fit between the rare book program and the university. One thing led to another on two trips in Charlottesville. By the end of November 1990, it was apparent to those immediately concerned that the rare books program was going to be heading south. On one of my exploratory trips to the University of Virginia in 1990, I wandered into the ground floor lobby of this building, the Rotunda, where I was greeted formally by an imposing well-dressed woman whose name I later discovered was Evelyn Turnbull and whose title was formerly Rotunda Administrator and informally Mama Rotunda. <laughs> Good morning, she said. Are you a Boy Scout or a pragmatist? had nothing to say by way of a reply, <laughs> and after waiting courteously for a moment, she explained that a local Boy Scout troop was having a meeting in the Lower West Oval Room, and that the philosopher Richard Rorty was hosting a conference of pragmatists upstairs, <laughs> upstairs in the Dome Room. If you're not a Boy Scout or a pragmatist, then you might be a tourist, Mrs. Turnbull said doubtfully, but she said I didn't look like a tourist. I took this as a compliment. In fact, what I should have been looking like was at least a bit of a pragmatist. During the negotiations that brought me to the University of Virginia with a full-time teaching appointment, I said idly that the books on the shelves and the glass-fronted bookcases circling this room were not really in keeping with the character of the room. They included the nation's principal collection of Virginia high school yearbooks. And I suggested to Kendon Stubbs that the Book Arts Press cloth binding collections would look better on these shelves than leather at yearbooks. The result of this quite casual comment is that the university library turned over the shelves in the dome room uh, for several of the Book Arts Press collections and with permission to develop an exhibition program on the middle shelves of each bay. More on this program shortly. But meanwhile, my appointment as university professor and honorary curator of special collections began in July 1992, and the first UVA rare book school was held in 1993. Inevitably, there were major changes in the rare book program as the result of its move to the University of Virginia. There is no library school in Virginia. Indeed, there is no library school in the state of Virginia. The closest schools are in North Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky, the District of Columbia, and Maryland. On the other hand, the principal educational thrust of the rare book program in its final Columbia years was rare book school, not the SOS master's level program in rare books and the Book Arts Press's publications and most of its other activities have had an increasingly large and wide audience not restricted to any single discipline or profession. The University of Virginia provides a superb platform for the present and future activities of the Book Arts Press and its friends, admirers, and servants. It will be clear from what I have said that the fortunes of the Book Arts Press and of Rare Book School are closely intertwined. The Book Arts Press is the umbrella group it is a not-for-press-room suite in Alderman Library. The Book Arts Press is resident at the University of Virginia, and it feels very much at home here. But the press is not an administrative division of the university. It is an independent entity with its own board of directors. This being said, the greatest present friend of the Book Arts Press and of Rare Book School remains the University of Virginia. 
UVA currently makes a very substantial contribution indeed towards the well-being of these operations. In the first instance, as regards my own salary and that of my assistant, Jennifer Meyer. At Columbia, a quarter of my salary and half of the salary of my assistant were billed to Rare Book School. Considerable as UVA's financial contribution to our salaries is, it makes an even more substantial contribution by providing the Book Arts Press with quarters in buildings at the center of the central grounds of the university. At UVA, my appointment allows me to teach in any department that will have me. And I am currently teaching undergraduate courses in the history of the book, in the history department, and the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. My courses put me in touch with interesting students, two of whom you will have met this week, Heather Horechny and Jonathan Miller, are both on the Rare Book School staff this summer. The work of another of my undergraduate UVA students surrounds you, that of Elliot Talley, who received his BA degree from the university in May of this year. Talley was the undergraduate curator of the exhibition in the cases in this room, two for a nickel, printed ephemera relating to Thomas Jefferson and Monticello. As many of you know well, a large exhibition can easily take five years or more to plan and execute. Thus, in exhibition terms, undergraduates are mayflies. They aren't with us long enough to have the time to come up with the idea for a show, research it, make up a list of items to go on view, locate those items, and get permission to borrow them, prepare the exhibition labels and captions, write the catalog, and finally mount the show itself. There's the further difficulty that most major book exhibition spaces have heavy ongoing commitments. Donors expect, not unreasonably, to have a substantial gift of books or similar materials recognized by an exhibition. Libraries with major holdings of a particular author or subject field feel obligated to do centenary and other ban banner year exhibitions celebrating their important possessions, if only as a way of claiming market share. It would be inconceivable for the University of Virginia to omit a Faulkner show in a major Faulkner year. We have the principal manuscript holdings of the author. And then external groups with considerable local firing power routinely attempt to persuade institutions to mount shows on a particular theme or individual as part of a conference, publishing venture, or other ad hoc or one-off occasion. The likely result of such pressures is to fill up the exhibition calendar years in advance and to discourage institutions from using student curators. And there is the further difficulty that library staff members do not always have easy access to curatorially enterprising undergraduates, even at their own institutions. There are undergraduates aplenty on the library payroll, but they have been hired to shelve books or staff service points, not to curate exhibitions. So far as I am aware, the Book Arts Press has the only ongoing program in the United States where undergraduate curators are given responsibility for major exhibitions. There are 247 objects in this one. There are a number of unusual circumstances that make such a program possible at UVA. First, my appointment here as university professor gives me great freedom in planning my own activities. University professors at UVA have no fixed duties at all. I like doing exhibitions myself and have done a considerable number of them. And I like working with student curators. I teach undergraduate courses on the history of the book, a rarity in this country in two divisions of the university, and thus I have two new batches of students each year from which to recruit curators. Second, 
the University of Virginia Library has a large exhibition space in Alderman Library in the McGregor Room and the adjoining Statinius Gallery. The bookcases in the Dome Room and the Rotunda were designed for book storage, not exhibitions. And the opening of Ivy Stacks in 1994 enabled the library to remove the books it had housed in this beautiful, but from a reader's point of view, very awkward location and encouraged the Book Arts Press use of the room for exhibitions. Third, my additional title at UVA, Honorary Curator of Special Collections, gives me unusual access to local exhibition expertise and physical resources. And because I have myself been in the field of rare books for rather more than a quarter of a century, I know the national lay of the land fairly well and have many contacts on whom I can draw for support in helping students to put their exhibitions together quickly. In the past four years, there have been three major rotunda exhibitions with undergraduate curators. Daniel J. Miller of the class of 96 inaugurated the program in May of that year with Books Go to War, Armed Services Editions in World War II. Some of you will remember the splendid lecture he gave from this podium on that subject a few months later. In the fall of 1998, Darby Kimball of the class of Ought-Ought, class of OO, the class of 00, nobody remembers what it is anymore. Darby Kimball produced an exhibition called You Can Sell a Book by Its Cover, Optimism in American Publishing. The Rotunda Show opening in May of this year that surrounds you, Two for a Nickel, was, as I said, curated by Elliot Talley of the class of 99. I have presented a fairly detailed account of the Book Arts Press's program of exhibition using undergraduate curators is an example of the richness of the entrepreneurial activities and opportunities that presently confront the various programs, both of the Book Arts Press and of Rare Book School. UVA is an easy university to do business with, especially after 29 years' experience of doing business with Columbia University. Our chief current problem is classroom space a problem likely to worsen over the next few years since Peabody will not be available to Rare Book School or to anyone else as a classroom after this summer. An irritating development, but one hard to complain about in view of the circumstances. Peabody Hall is about to become the new home of the university's admissions department, which is currently housed in Miller Hall, the long, ugly, narrow building between Peabody and Alderman. Miller Hall is about to disappear to be replaced with the above-ground part of a brand-new rare book library, most of which will be underground, stretching beneath the lawn in front of Alderman. Groundbreaking should take place shortly, and with luck, there will be new classrooms in the new rare book library ready for use by Rare Book School, we hope, in the year 2002. We will have to play this by ear. Because of the university's brand-new summer orientation program, involving more than a 1,000 incoming first-year students and their parents, classroom space was very tight this summer, and I did not get formal approval for the use of our four Peabody Hall classrooms until the beginning of February, less than six months ago, and more than a month after I announced the programs, which I very much hoped would be able to inhabit them. We may be in a tent on no-name field before we're finished. Rest assured, however, that Rare Book School will be someplace, not only next year, but for a good long time. On this front, I have good news to report. In 1994, the retired librarian of the Huntington Library, Robert Dugan, unexpectedly gave the Book Arts Press a gift of $20,000, by far the largest amount we had ever received. We marked his contribution by establishing an E.P. Goldschmidt Fellowship 
at Rare Book School, honoring Dugan's old boss in the London book trade. When Mr. Dugan died in April of this year at the age of 94, we learned that he had bequeathed us a further $50,000. With other gifts, this sum brings the total Book Arts Press endowment to just over $100,000. Everyone tells me that the first $100,000 is the hardest. <laughs> in any event, five years ago, in July 1994, we were about $30,000 in debt. And being $100,000 $100, in the black simply confirms for me what Sophie Tucker used to say, that I've been poor and I've been rich, and rich is better. <laughs> there is other news to report. I was recently informed that the Book Arts Press has been made the residuary legatee of a substantial estate, and that in the fullness of time, we should be receiving a bequest from this estate in the low seven figures. This is the largest example of planned giving likely to benefit the Book Arts Press over the next several decades, but by no means the only one. And one of my priorities over the next several years will be to encourage others to think of the Book Arts Press when making their wills. And we're going to need money. Eventually, it seems clear, the Book Arts Press will need its own building, both to house its constantly growing collections and also in order to be able to run Rare Book School courses whenever there seems a need for them, summer, winter, or at any other time of the year, irrespective of the academic calendar. Applications for admission to Rare Book School Summer Session 199 courses, 1999 courses increased by more than 25% from last year alone. As a result, we had to waitlist or reject more than 100 applicants. Most Rare Book School courses are what we call ignorance courses. The chief requirement for gaining admission to them is a thoroughgoing ignorance of the subjects treated. I was forced to waitlist more than twice as many prospective students as I could admit to my illustration course this year, a course of action which over the long haul makes no sense whatsoever. I need to teach more sections of the course annually and to have a convenient place in which to teach them. And the same is true for at least half a dozen, probably more, rare book school courses, which always have waiting lists. There will be a rare book school winter session in January and March 2000. The courses tentatively scheduled for the week of January 3-7 include Deborah Leslie's rare book school, excuse me, Deborah Leslie's rare book cataloging course, Daniel Pitty's EAD, and Daniel Traster's introduction to rare book librarianship, this time around open to all comers, as well as my own illustration course. During the week of March 13-17, we plan to run the introduction to descriptive bibliography course, and perhaps two others still in the planning stages. Rare book school courses, summer or winter, happen only because competent faculty members are willing to teach them, and indeed, go on teaching them. Richard Noble has been co-teaching the introductory descriptive bibliography course with me since 1997, though his involvement with Rare Book School as a staff member goes back to the 1980s. Eric Holzenberg began teaching in Rare Book School in 1996. This is his fourth year here. David Seaman has taught his electronic text course twice every year since 1993. This is his seventh year on the Rare Book School faculty. Susie Taraba began teaching in Rare Book School in 1987. So young and yet so wise. This is her tenth year on the Rare Book School faculty. Nicholas Pickwode also began teaching in Rare Book School in 1987. 
This week he is teaching his course on European bookbinding for the 20th time here. Paul Needham and Michael Turner were both members of the original 1983 faculty. Here is the real strength and continuity of these operations. Over the past 10 years, over the past quarter of a century, a surprisingly large number of remarkably able persons have allowed themselves to become attached to Rare Book School and the Book Arts Press. I'm grateful to them all, and I'm sure you are too. Another of our support structures remains to be mentioned. At the moment, there are 756 friends of the Book Arts Press, by far the largest number in the group's history. About 500 friends who give us $30 a year or more, plus about 100, excuse me, start that again. 500 friends who give us $30 a year or more, plus about 185 close friends who contribute $85 a year or more, and finally 55 best friends who give us $250 or more. Friends get the Book Arts Press Address Book, the Book Arts Press Christmas Card, which is not like other Christmas cards, the Book Arts Press Valentine, which is not at all like other Valentines, early warnings about Rare Book School, and, all things being equal, preferential admission to their courses. I hope you'll agree that it's to everyone's advantage to support the operations of the Book Arts Press and its cottage industries if you have any interest in this field. Application forms for the friends are tastefully laid out on every flat surface in the Book Arts Press Room, <laughs> where I hope you will adjourn with me shortly for a glass of wine and conversation. There, you can make a closer inspection of our new double paper mold presented to the Book Arts Press by Cal Otto in this room last night and see the latest trophies in the continuing saga of the Book Arts Press's Epistles of St. Jerome. On Thursday nights last summer, we showed the Book Arts Press copy of Volume 2 of a magisterial folio edition of the Epistles of St. Jerome in Latin, handsomely printed in Parma in 1480. Through the good offices of Mary Cooper Gillum, we had acquired this book several years earlier in its original ruined binding. Nicholas Pickwell took it away, removed the original binding, was able to use the original sewing supports in order to recreate the original binding and facsimile on the book so that we have what is essentially a new incunable, heavily played with this week uh, by several classes. Nicholas was not able to bring the original cover, which he has now preserved in a handsome uh, double-sided case. Because not all of you have uh, had a chance to look at the book, we've uh, dragged poor Jerome out again tonight together with the ancillary material, and that will be on display in the Book Arts Press as well. I hope you will adjourn with me there now. Thank you very much.